This is Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Streaming nationwide on the 710 Sports app and 710sports.com. Now here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Play the play on the show. show, show, show. Brock's a quarterback. But one of the differences between Brock and the other quarterbacks that appear on television and tell us about the game is Brock's got an appreciation for some of the fellas, the big hog mollies that do the dirt up front. I know he would have appreciated Damian Lewis saying that he likes putting an opponent in the ground instead of on the ground. Putting him in the ground, the dent. Let's get Brock Heward in here for Blue 42. Here we go. This is Blue 42. We're going to go red, right, tight, close, sprint left, GU corner, halfback, flat, on two. Ready, right. Now here's your host, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Blue 42! Blue 42! Good morning, Brock. How are you now? I'm well, Polly. I'm well. And I would say, Danny, that that appreciation comes from a background of playing on the line of scrimmage. Being a tight oh, end my you were sophomore a tight end? year. Yeah. Playing for the great O-line coach Bill Wernofsky at Puyallup High School, uh, going all the way to the state title game, having to block people that were a lot bigger and stronger than me, especially near the end of the year. But, yeah, I loved I loved playing tight end back in the day. So at least I have a little lens of what it's like to play on the line of scrimmage, and I would hope that's where some of my appreciation comes for those big boys. Now, I do want to know that who hit you hardest in high school, because I think the answer to that in the NFL is John Mobley. That John Mobley hit you the hardest. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, is, I've told this story before. Mike Sellers. It is I, Sellers. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I went to blindside him on a screen, a little crackback, and I hit him with everything I could and thinking, I, I can't wait to deplete this 240-pound monster. And yours truly was the one that, that repelled backwards. So that didn't quite happen. <laughs> I hope Robbie Tobek's listening right now because Tobek had a similar moment facing the Jaguars at the start of the 2005 season, their Super Bowl season. Robbie went to the Pro Bowl that year, but they had big, two big studs up front, John Henderson yep. and Marcus Stroud. Yes. And there was a play where, I don't know if it was Hutch, but somebody had Henderson engaged. And Robbie said, all I saw was ribs. And he went over there to just hit Henderson as hard as he could in the ribs, exposed ribs. And Henderson turned at him after he hit him and said, you're going to have to do a lot better than that, old man. <laughs> and Robbie went back to the, the huddle and said, we're screwed. Yes. <laughs> we're, we, we, we are in trouble. Those two D tackles were the two. I think that's the only time in my NFL career, at least. I mean, there were certain edge players that you had to account for and you're going to chip and we're going to slide to Reggie White, even though he was 45 years old. We were going to mix some things up. But those two in Indianapolis when we were there, Tom Moore in the division, right? So we played against them, knew them. It was just like, yep, we're not running these plays. Not even going to try. <laughs> not so. It's, don't feel bad. You know, Ryan Deem, Jeff Saturday, this is not a slight against you. It's just you're you're not moving them. We're not doing this. We're not we're not running these plays because the, the seven hundred pounds plays yes. up on toilet paper. <laughs> yes. if you're not able to block those. We two guys. with them because we're not going to run them against those two guys. There you go. <laughs> Question one. Sorry, Paul. Oh, all good. You know, let's keep the offensive line talk going. We, we had this challenge for texters as we were going into uh, our conversation with Damian Lewis. Describe the Seahawks offensive line last year in one word. We got sufficient a couple of times, injured, mediocre, satisfactory. 
In 2021, what do you expect it to be? Damian Lewis swapping over to the left side. You have Gabe Jackson at right guard. We're not sure what's going on with Dwayne Brown. Uh-huh. Uh, in, in 2021, I expect this O-line to be top 10 in the league. Mm. Last year, I think they were, you know, with all the different moving parts, I think they were average. They were not where they had been in some years. It's the five, one of the five worst in the league. I think last year they worked themselves up to being about league average. Still couldn't block Aaron Donald, Leonard Floyd, and not many people could as that was the number one defense in the league and one of the most disruptive. But, but by and large, you didn't say, oh my gosh, every game Euroline wrecked this game plan. You couldn't do this. You couldn't do that. So last year I thought they were average. I think this year with Dwayne Brown, and that's a big whiff, and, and I think hopefully a deal gets done and, and he gets satisfied with that. And, you know, some of the depth pieces you have, and Gabe Jackson can be, you know, a part of a top 10 offensive line. You think Posa can be a part of a top 10 offensive line. Dwayne Brown's one of the top five left tackles. And asking them what to do, as I've said to you repeatedly, a system that benefits and makes their job easier up front. To me, this should be a top 10 offensive line in 2021. Who's the biggest question mark in that regard? Is it Posick? Who's who's the person on that starting offensive line that you worry about the most going into this season? Who? Uh, probably number six on that O-line, to be honest with you. Like the, the yeah, top five, yeah. Danny, I yep. feel pretty good about. But you know what happens. Yep. Right? It happens every hit. single year. Someone's going to get hurt. When I read yesterday the starting offensive line, Kyle Fuller, Jamarco Jones, that's not top ten. I don't even know if that's could be league average. But Posick and Dwayne Brown, that's top 10. So, honestly, it's probably number six or number seven. The top five, feel pretty good about, especially putting a couple of the tight ends on the end of that line, and Will Disley in particular. Uh, that That's crew that, that should be able to do everything that uh, the new coordinator, Shane Waldron, wants them to do. Question two. I'm not quite sure what to make of what Seattle's doing with Dwayne Brown. Pete was very upfront about Jamal Adams saying, hey, everything's been amicable. We hope something gets done. Jamal's there, but he's not practicing. Dwayne Brown is there. Went through walkthrough. He's not practicing. Pete talked about taking care of him as a veteran. I want you to hear when they... Mm -hmm. Pete did everything he could to not mention contract. And so Bob Condota asked him specifically about it. I want you to listen to to Pete's answer here. There's still any talks in contract with him? We're not talking right now about that. Yep, that is, we're not talking, and look, I've covered Pete long enough to know, he's saying we're not talking about that with you. He's not talking about any potential deliberations with Dwayne Brown or his agent. This is about the contract. He didn't practice yesterday because it's about the contract. So that's how I read it. You can paint it any which way you want. Uh, We're going to protect him. It's workload. It's everything else. It's the first day of freaking training camp. Okay? Like, you come out. You're the left tackle. You're one of the best players on this team. If you're happy with your contract, if you had an extension, he would have practiced yesterday, not just done walkthrough. So that's my opinion, and very little would change that. Now, do you think, Pete, not answering that, that the team has decided they're not going to extend him and see what happens? Or do you think that that's just the next item on the agenda and they haven't gotten to it yet? Yes, I think that's more of the latter. I would be shocked if they don't want to try to find a way to extend him and make him happy, especially with the upcoming cap space, knowing the the importance of that position on the O-line. Yes, this system makes it easier. For the O-line as a group, you still have to have an elite left tackle like Andrew Whitworth has been. 
who is older than Dwayne Brown, who's got more wear and tear than Dwayne Brown down in L.A. So I I would think they that Dwayne's done everything and more that they expected when they gave up a ton for him. And it is, we're not talking about that right now because we've got to get Jamal done. So I don't even want to go down that road. I don't want any leading questions. I don't want to be held accountable for something I may say here because, A, we got to get it done with, with Jamal. Uh, we've talked to his people about it, that it's top priority for us. So I don't want to go answer anything about anybody else because this is our priority. Get it done with Jamal, and then you take care of the rest of the business. Question number three. We did not get a whole lot of answers as far as what was going on behind the scenes with the Seahawks and Russell Wilson. Everything is fine, and we just moved on. Aaron Rodgers, meanwhile, was very, very transparent yesterday at that press conference that he did. He named 12 veterans, Brock, yeah. the, play, the Packers had an either released or didn't resign in his career. He gave a six-minute timeline of everything that went down in his offseason. Mm. He claimed he never called for Brian Gutekunst to be fired. He called the relationship professional. And basically, the thing that he was asking for the most was for an ability to have input as far as who joins the roster, but more so to be a part of the recruiting process, it felt mm. like. Mentioning the fact that, yeah, it's not exactly like people are coming here for vacations. They're coming here to win championships and play with me. And at the very end, though, I this this actually makes me look at him a little bit differently. He made it clear that he is not some sad, sad, play a small little violin for me kind of fella. I'm not a victim here at all. I just want to reiterate that. Like, I've been paid a ton of money by this organization. I'm so thankful to be a starter here for my 14th season. Uh, not many guys have the opportunity to do that. So I'm not uh, – I don't feel like anything's been done to me. There is – it's a business. It's an incredible opportunity to play this game. Uh, it's a tough business too, though, and this is part of it. So I, I, I totally get that point, and that's, that's not lost on me. That's why I'm just going to enjoy this season like I did last year, have the right perspective, and and then make decisions at the end of the season. Does this press conference, Brock, change your opinion of the way that Aaron Rodgers has handled this whole thing? Not really. I think it further cemented my belief that he was going to get his pound of flesh. That if I, that I'm going to come back here and I'm going to play one more year and we're going to have one more last dance, then I'm going to you know have like Michael Jordan did to Kraus, Jerry Kraus, and others. Like I'm going to have the final word. I'm going to have the say. And I don't think this is a one and done over the course of the season because we know adversity comes, difficult times come, and I don't think he's going to bite his lip. I don't think he's going to have a filter that maybe he's had uh, at times and in times past. So this was, I think, the the beginning barrage of that. It, I, I listened to that, and there were two two people that came to my mind that I thought about consistently through that. Number one, Tom Brady, who is the GOAT, who is the greatest of all time, who played in a business and for a business with Bill Belichick that it's not about you. Even if you win six Super Bowls, I'm, not, I'm never going to ask you anything. You do your job. I do my job. We all do our jobs, and we win six Super Bowls. And just how counter that was to everything that Aaron was wanting. And then the second guy was Russell. I did think about Russell through that. Like, what, what does Russell think? I, I would love to uh, have true serum, right? Maybe after Russell gets his massage and does his post-stretch and he's on his drive home, just say, what, what do you think about that? And, and, and get Russell's take on that. And, and, and if Russell's like, man, that's, that's not protecting the team. That's, not, that's a rule one breaker. That's, that's not me. I'm, I'm much more like Brady and much more on, in that camp. Let me just do my job and do it well. Or 
you know, it was kind of last year and this last offseason, the first foray into a new world order for quarterbacks. And quarterbacks held at the level that Russ and Rodgers are, that their voice is going to be heard more and they're going to make it heard more. It feels weird to hear all of that from, from Rodgers. And in some cases, hearing him list all the different things, I was mad that they let Jake Kumaro go without talking to me. I was mad that they didn't take me up on my offer to recruit other free agents. All of these different things, it seemed to me like when you're in a fight with somebody uh-huh. and you go searching for evidence to mm-hmm. validate your grievance. Yep. You go yep. searching for examples of how they don't appreciate you. And it's Point. as much to sort of bolster your own position in your head that you've been wronged. Yes. He didn't like that they drafted somebody that played his position. And right. while I understand that, I don't think that the franchise is necessarily okay. wrong. It is backfired. It is backfired. But it's it's also kind of like if he feels that way, whenever you decide to move on from him, he's going to throw this fit. Yes. So to, uh, to, as you're speaking there, Danny, I can't help but think of the two head coaches I played for in the NFL. And I could picture Mike Holmgren right the day after, like today if it was present day, and he was still, he would call us in and say, don't do that. With that, just don't ever do that. Don't do that. Very simply, like, yep. that, that's, that's not what I want for my quarterback. And then on the flip side, Tony Dungy would say, you know, and, and he, he referenced this a bunch. What are you doing to make the situation better? What She's are you doing, doing yeah. to make the situation better? Are you doing anything? Did you just airing the airing your grievances and getting a pound of our flesh for seventeen minutes? Did that make the situation? What are you doing to make the situation better? No, he wants them to wallow in the discomfort that he's felt since the moment they drafted Jordan Love. That's what he, that's what he wants. Is like, okay, you put me on notice. Now I'm putting you on notice, and we'll see how you like it when the rabbits got the gun. And I believe, and this is from Aaron's perspective, that I am the most important person in this entire organization. I'm more important could, than, and there's not really an owner, right? There's a whole ownership yeah. group. So it's a little different there, right? He couldn't say that in Dallas or here, or, you know, with the other 31 owners, that that owner is the one. But he, I, you know, as I read that, it's basically saying, I am the single most important entity in this entire organization. Without me, none of you have jobs, None of you had the success that we have tasted over the last 15 years, 14 as a starter, that without me, we're not here. I would say this. Brock here joining us for Blue 42. Uh, we really appreciate it. We also, our training camp coverage brought to you by Precore Home Fitness. All of that is, is absolutely 100% spot on. That tends to rub me the wrong way. Yes. I tend to feel that like when the quarterback does that, the quarterback is behaving like owners behave or like the sort of the the privileged class. And I generally like it when players take control from from the team. I generally like root for I kind I kind of like those moments when the quarterback does it. I don't know if it's just my sort of nerd anti reflex towards seeing seeing the the most popular kid in school or the most powerful yeah. kid in school get all. But there's yeah. a part of it that's like sure. That's kind of lame. Well, and it's also why you've won one Super Bowl. Because it's not healthy. Oh, no! It's, it's, it's not Rock healthy. Rock off the what? top rope! Oh! But, but it's not a healthy dynamic, right? I mean, Pete Carroll and, and you know, in their run and their 
near dynastic run of nearly winning a second, right? What did you have? You had checks and balances. You had a legion of boom. You had a head coach. You had a quarterback. You had Marshawn. You had all these huge forces at play that all of them knew. Like, man, it takes all of us. Each one of them individually is like, yeah, I'm, I may be the most important piece. Richard certainly believed he was the most important piece, but he folded into the fabric of everybody else. As I mentioned, Tom Brady. Right, won six Super Bowls, and they did that there. Why? Because he had checks and balances. He had elite defenders like Teddy Bruschi early in his career. He had a head coach all the way along over those 20 years there. You have checks and balances. It never is healthy. I don't care what the organization is. If there's one that believes he's more important than everybody else, doesn't work. He is Brock here. Brock, we always love talking to you. And we'll catch up with you next week when we're, gosh, entering week two of training camp. Thanks <sighs> so much. Knee deep into it. Knee deep, boys. Have a great weekend. That is Brock Heward. We will talk to him each Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Uh, I, d- I did not expect that that cumulative. Did you like what Rodgers had to say? Like, did you find yourself liking Rodgers more or less after the press conference? Paul? Actually, more. Yeah, and I mean, I think you guys made some great points. So I, I sat back there. I, I don't disagree with any of what you said. I mean, I think the point that you just brought up about how he may have gone back for evidence to make his argument correct, I thought that's a fantastic point. It, it does come off that way, but I can't help but but, com- but compare the two situations and I honestly would feel a lot differently, I guess, about the Russell Wilson versus the Seahawks, whatever that was this offseason, had we gotten some of this same kind of explanation. Like, I feel like when he lists it all like that, whether he's right or wrong, and honestly, in a lot of cases, he's wrong. I think he's going to be a terrible general manager, seeing as he's forcing them to trade for Randall Cobb. And it sounds like that from Brian Gutekunst this morning. But... The actual transparency, and at the end, the specific part that I wanted to hear more than anything was that he is not painting himself as a victim. And I would just, I would just throw that in the face of any of the people who are acting like he is the subject of some ASPCA ad. He's got it fine, you know? And, and this is his way, I guess, of fighting for what he wants. So that part of it in particular, I'm tired of quarterbacks being made out to be victims in good situations and he basically said that's not the case. And that, to me, is, I think, good by him. But he followed that up by saying, I'm not the victim, but here's all the reasons why I'm mad. <laughs> like, that's a, weird, that's a weird, I'm not the victim, but here's an exact explanation why. And, I mean, maybe that's totally valid in the way that you should go about expressing your displeasure. But I found a weird disconnect there. I, I, I get you. I, I'm, not, but- I'm not the victim, but I'm mad that they, they cut Jake Kumaro. <laughs> He should have left Kumaro out of it, man. Yeah, I know. know. Once you hear Kumaro, you're like, Like, what are we we talking about? We're sitting here talking about Kumaro. (laughs) Not not about a star. We're talking about Kumaro. Not Devontae Adams, not Donald Driver, Kumaro. Right. I, I, I like that part of it. It definitely takes a lot of the legs out from underneath him. But at the same time, don't we want to hear these guys say what they're mad about? Whether it's rational or irrational, as opposed to keeping it all close to the vest? And with, with Russ, it's, it's been unclear, you know? It's, well, I want input. Okay, well, where did you want input? He's at least willing to say where he wants it, and we can roast him for it, right? I mean, we can roast him for saying Kumro, which is ridiculous. Or for Randall Cobb, who hasn't been Randall Cobb for probably four to five years. But he is at least putting it out there so we can take a look at it and dissect it however we want. And, and I would have liked that from Russ. I would have liked to have some specifics to maybe get a feel for actually if he would be good at this roster input that he wants to have. It is Danny and Gallant. 
We're going to have Jerry Depoto joining us about 10 minutes. The Mariners head back out on the road. They're going to go play Texas. Then they've got a series in Tampa, followed by a series against the New York Yankees. This is kind of the gauntlet of their schedule. Sandwiched around that before they really get going here is the trade deadline. They finished a really good homestand. They went 4-3 and against the two teams they're chasing in the division. They won 3-4 of against the A's. There's a little bit of a gut punch in the middle there with the trade of Kendall Graveman. They lost the final two games of that homestand. Is this a matter of the Astros just being at a different level? Or was it sort of the, the team losing the momentum it had grabbed after that trade? And whether that is the front office sort of sapping that momentum and the players letting down. What do you think happened? To me, it's what you said at first. It's it, The Astros are a dreadnought, and they're on a different level than you. And they're on a different level than the A's. They're on a different level than all but maybe three teams in baseball. You know, it's like the Dodgers and them and maybe the Red Sox with the way that they've played thus far this season somehow. Uh, outside of that, you know, this is a team that has clear limitations. They do not have the firepower. <laughs> they do not have the deflector shields to compete with firepower of that magnitude. You know, this is a team that is playing, I think, very well despite a lot of limitations. So that's how I'm looking at it. But how about you? I felt like they lost the momentum they had. And I'm not sure if that would have made a difference in those final two games. The the Astros played like the best hitting team in baseball. And that's what they are. They're the best hitting team in baseball. I'm not sure. But it certainly felt like, and it is going to be important. I think it puts a huge emphasis on these next 24 hours and whether or not the Mariners are able to pull off a trade that helps the team in 2021. And I know that Jerry's priority is helping the team both now and into the future, and they believe that they can do that. But I think that everybody's going to be watching. We're going to talk to the Mariners' general manager. He joins us here right at the eve of the trade deadline. That's coming up next. You're listening to Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. The more time we've gotten between the Graveman trade, the more time that's passed, the more I like it. Which is weird to say, even though I get how many people look at it and say, hey, that took the wind out of the sails of the Seattle Mariners. I look at it and say that there was some sound baseball rationale that went into this. And that I see that the value that they got from it. I think it's a deal that also embodies some of the challenge that a general manager has. Of how do you balance long-term trajectory with short-term needs or possibility of gains? How have you felt as the days that have gone on, Paul? Well, actually, we've got Jerry Depoto is with us right now. He joins us on the Issaquah Pest Control Hotline. And first of all, Jerry, I want to say thanks for joining us on what is an exceptionally busy time for you. Oh, you got it. Glad to do it. Well, I think we'll start out by asking just the the the, the rationale behind the trade of Kendall Graveman and Rafael Montero, who had been designated for assignment, and getting getting back a a veteran pitcher as well as Abraham Toro. What what, what prompted you guys to make that move? Uh, well, a couple of things. You know, one, it's I'm a little surprised that it took people by surprise. <laughs> you know, this mm-hmm. is we we have been talking about this in just this way for, for quite some time, you know, on this show and, and uh, you know, in, in most of our connection with the public. So I, I, I don't know that it should be a shocking move. We went in with the intent to, to find ways to make our present club better while addressing, you know, our future needs as well. And, and there are still multiple days left in this trade deadline. You know, this is one snapshot in what we hope is a bigger picture, uh, some of which was later filled in by acquiring Tyler Anderson. But, you know, we made that move because we had an opportunity to acquire a player we thought 
had everyday ability. And, you know, Abraham Toro is, is roughly what we do with the Mariners. You know, Mitch Hanniger, Ty France, Luis Torrens, J.P. Crawford, the 20-somethings that, that are blocked in their organizations who we provide opportunity. It's, it's been a really good recipe for us. And, and we felt like Abraham fit in that, in that model or mold. And, and we, we took the chance. And, and we believe that, that we're going to be able to, to improve our team in other ways as we move forward. And, and we definitely feel like we made a change in the way our future looks, which is a positive thing. Jerry, Ryan Divish had an article in the Seattle Times that described the very emotional response from the clubhouse to Graveman's departure, a guy that they clearly felt very, very, um, they had very strong feelings for. Were you, and if you've seen the article, were you caught off guard by some of the really strong comments, angry comments that seemed to be coming out of the clubhouse in said piece? Uh, I did see the piece, and and caught off guard would probably be the wrong wrong way to reference it. Part of how I feel or how I work is to give people room to to feel the way they want to feel. And, you know, we're we're living in a particularly emotional time. And, you know, and Kendall's a great guy. He's a particularly emotional guy. So I'm not entirely shocked that there would be an emotional response to his departure. So. My, my general take on it is, you know, give people the space to work it out on their own. And, you know, we, they're professionals. This, this is part of the game. Uh, we all know that. And one of the things that I, that, that I want to go back and stress is we're doing the things that we were committed to doing. You know, if, at the end of the 2018 season, we started our rebuild, you know, termed it a step back, you know, or at least someone publicly blessed at that. And the goal was, you know, within two or three seasons to return to a contending position, you know, with a, a younger, more flexible and sustainable roster. And and I think we, we've actually done a nice job of, of answering that. You know, here we are two years later in a very similar window of contention to where we were when when we started that that process. And, and I feel like it's going very well and we don't want to deviate from the plan we laid out. Jerry Depoto is with us. I'd add to that, Jerry, because in some ways, the, the 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 seeing this team start to succeed at this at, at this rate and and make a climb to where you're nine games above 500 and had won three or four against the A's is testament to that. And you're kind of continuing with the process. How does how does clubhouse culture? How does how does establishing and preserving culture sort of inform or or, or come to bear on the decisions you make going forward? Uh, it's a big deal, you know, and, and it's always difficult to try to find. I, I think I've, I've termed it just this way when asked this question leading into the deadline. You know, we're walking a very sensitive line between how to balance our needs for present and, and our continued desire to get better in the future. And, and clubhouse chemistry is one of the most important, you know, and perhaps the most important thing we'll do. Uh, and it's a, I, there's, but you're not going to please everyone. And you know, I, I, I guess my, my general thought would be give them time to, to have whatever reaction they want to have. And my guess is it's not 26 players reacting in a negative way. Many might understand what, what we're trying to achieve here. And, and hopefully, you know, Abraham Toro and Joe Smith are able to acclimate quickly. It seems to have gone well on the field the first couple of days and, and we'll get through it. But now, I, I, I know Joe. He's a wonderful human. Uh, he, too, has great leadership qualities. And, 
uh, and I, when we really think these guys will will work well with our group. This, you know, I, and I will say this time about a year ago, you know, last year's trade deadline, we had a very similar reaction from a couple of the veteran players in the clubhouse when we traded uh, Austin Nola to the San Diego Padres, and you know, and at this at that time when we acquired you know some players who weren't too dissimilar from Abraham Toro and and you know the, the place in their career and and who they were and how we thought they'd fit in and it didn't take very long for for our players to warm up to to the new guys so to speak and and understand why we chose the route we did and I, I would go back and make that trade a hundred times out of a hundred and and I feel like a year from now we're going to have the same feeling about this one. Abraham Toro has homered in, in both of his first two games uh, as a Mariner. L- looking ahead, you, we're also talking about a trade deadline process that's not completed. you still got time left before the end of the trade deadline. I'm seeing a report now uh, from the MLB network that, you, the, the, that there are teams, the Chicago White Sox, are getting close to acquiring Cesar Hernandez. Um, what, what's left out there for you guys? Do you expect there are going to be more deals done here in the next 24 to 48 hours? Yeah, we're working it. You know, not sleeping a whole lot here these last yeah. couple of days, but you know, it's a it's been a very active time for us. We're you know we are connected with a number of teams. We're trying to improve our, our club in any way we can. And you know, and and unfortunately, when when you make moves, someone comes in, someone has to go out, whether to another organization or or to to the minor league. So. You know, it's a, we're not done with uh, with any type of turbulence, and we'll continue to find ways to improve. And we and we feel like that's possible here in these next two days. That's always been part of our plan. Uh, you know, if I had a, a, a thing I would like to change about the way the week has gone for us, you know, we played a wonderful homestand. You know, I hated the timing of the the mm-hmm. trade with Graveman, but the piece that that gets lost in the wash and that that many, including our players, just won't understand is. You know, Rafael Montero was actually part of that trade, <laughs> and yep. and, uh, and not an insignificant part to the Houston Astros, and and they wanted Montero, and and that was the the conversation we were having that ultimately led to uh, the Kendall Graveman Montero combo and and the, the the return that we received, and Rafael Montero had to be traded by Monday, otherwise he had to go on waivers the following day, and. Uh, it was just too good an opportunity to pass up for us uh, and, and what it meant for the Mariners' future. And that's my job, is to make sure that we're always in, in a healthy position now and as we move forward. And I'll continue to do that the best I can. You've got an infielder and maybe a infielder of the future, a third base or something along those lines. You've got in Tyler Anderson, another pitcher who came to you after things fell apart with another trade between uh, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. So there's a starting pitcher. There's an infielder. I'd imagine with Graveman gone that the the bullpen is something that you guys are looking to address. I guess, where would you prioritize what you want to acquire over the next 30 hours or so? Like anyone else who's currently looking to, to add at this time, we're focused most on the pitching. But you know, do feel like giving, I've stressed this over and over, giving continued opportunity to our young players is really critical to our growth, and we don't want to stop that. Uh, and you can never have too much pitching. So, you know, if that be in the rotation, if that be in the bullpen, you know, that would be priority number one. And if we can find a bat, we're going to we're gonna do the best we can to do both those things, improve the pitching and, and add to the offense. The bat might be a little bit of a tougher fit because as we get Jake Fraley back this week and as we get – 
Kyle Lewis back hopefully in, in a week or two. There's just not going to be a ton of opportunity. So we have to be creative in how we make that happen. But uh, those are things that we're focused on. And if we see opportunity, we're going we're gonna to take advantage because that's what this time of year is about. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this, but you know, it's just us three right here. It's just Danny. It's me. It's it's you, Joe. Sure. Are there are there any trades that you've made that we can you know discuss among friends and maybe you can announce here? <laughs> no, I, I wish there were. There there are multiple <laughs> multiple that we're talking through almost minute by minute. But yeah, nothing nothing that I would say is even imminent. But you know, hoping to make progress on on one or two today, and and do feel confident that minimally by tomorrow we're going to be able to. To add a little bit here, which is uh, going to be another positive and what's been a generally positive season. It's been a great season and a great homestand with four and three. Uh, Jerry, I do want to just say, I, I really appreciate how forthright you are over the course of this time and letting us see the, the rationale and the process and coming out to talk through uh, some of the decisions. I know it helps me understand the, the process that you're you're using to to guide this franchise going forward and I know I speak for our listeners when I say that so I just want to say thank you very much because it, it it is it's very useful for us and I feel like we've gotten tremendous insight into how and why you're doing the the moves that you're doing and why we're seeing this team take the steps that it is I appreciate it and I'm always glad to do it guys thank you very much Thanks, that Jerry. is Jerry Depoto our Mariners general manager we've got a lot to react to there. We'll also get back to Seahawks training camp, but that idea that you're going to have Jake Fraley and maybe Kyle Lewis here in the immediate future and what comes next, we'll discuss through what Jerry DePoto just said to us next. You're listening to Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. We just spoke with Mariners General Manager Jerry DePoto. The podcast will be up on the Danny and Gallant podcast feed in a bit in case you missed it. Danny, you heard something in particular from Jerry. One message that was your biggest takeaway from our conversation with the Mariners GM. I kind of know what I'm doing here, and I'm doing what I told you. I, I know what I'm doing here, and I'm doing what I told you. I think he said it exceptionally politely. But when he explained that, I think that that, he looks at that deal and he says that this isn't any different than the trade last year of Austin Nola. And that, yeah, Austin Nola was a valuable player for us. And we, we liked how he played and we saw him as a part of us going forward. But when we saw an opportunity to get players that we thought when they stacked up enough prospects that were like, we've got to do this now. When we ran into a team that was focused and fixated on making that addition... And they, they they made it worth our while, we pulled the trigger. And that's how he feels. And all of the different things that we've talked about, about the momentum and the feeling within the clubhouse and the importance of Kendall Graveman, all those things are true. He was at the approaching, he's in the final year of his contract, and they saw an opportunity to get a guy that they think will help them now and be a significant factor going forward, and he thinks that they're going to come out of the trade deadline better than, than they went into it because of that deal, and so he pulled the trigger. And it, it makes sense to me. It does. I've always seen the baseball value in acquiring Abraham Toro, and I think what Jerry's saying there is look past the feelings and look past the timing to see that baseball value. He mentioned the timing there, too. So he does acknowledge, at the very least, that when you make a trade like this after a dramatic comeback victory over Houston— it definitely takes some wind out of the sails. It's just a natural byproduct. 
it's a t- terrible timing. It's in the middle of you've won four or five games in the middle of a great home stand, and it could not have happened worse. And he didn't have much choice about that. He didn't have any choice about that. That's that's when the the deal came, and he pulled the trigger. And I think Jerry's enough of a grown up in that in that job that he doesn't expect everybody to get up and unanimously say, "Ah." <laughs> he gets it. But he's he's also challenging and saying, look 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 beyond the timing of it and the initial see the value there. And I think you can see the value. The timing can't affect the moves that you make. It just can't. You have to operate shouldn't, right? in a pragmatic and practical way. It shouldn't. And I would hope that for most teams that their general manager is not a prisoner of the moment. Because if you are, then maybe you stay away from something like this and tell yourself that you actually have a legitimate chance to compete this year. And I just don't think you do. You have a, you have a legitimate chance to contend for the second wild card spot, right? Like you have a legitimate That's chance to end. get into September right. in the conversation for That's that. That's the ceiling. You don't, you don't have a legitimate shot at winning the division. You're not going to pass two teams that are by pretty much every statistical measurement better than you. Like that that's probably not going to happen. And look, if if you want if you wanted to be cynical about it, you'd say this way. You won two games on wild pitches against the A's and then you beat the Astros after falling down 7-0. So yeah, you're 4 and 1 in that homestand, but it's not like you're bludgeoning the doors off of anybody and and going on this streak. Like let's be a little bit realistic here. And should we let the momentum of a four-game win streak under those circumstances have ha, preserving that momentum is that important is is that significant enough to turn down a player that we really like in Abraham Toro? And I think Jerry said no, it's not. Going forward he said pitching is a priority like it is for most teams around the trade deadline. He said that he's still working on things. What happens if they don't get anything done in the next 30 hours or so? The deadline is tomorrow at 1 o'clock Pacific time. Huge disappointment. Like, there's, there's no other way to put it. It'll be a huge disappointment. But would um, it disrupt long-term what they're trying to do? I, like I, That's where I, I'm looking at it now, because clearly he is looking more at the long-term than he is at the short-term. I, I, I think that's a very fair assessment to make, and I, I think it's a rational approach. Where are you going to get? a front-end starter for next season, right? Like, if we if we look ahead and just say, okay, not even talking about how do you get to the playoffs this year in 2021. You need you need a top three starter for next year, right? Don't you? Yeah, and this is your best opportunity to get one because teams right. are selling. Right. It's going to be more expensive. It's going to take money because right now you've got teams that are deciding, like the Pirates have decided, like some other teams have decided that, okay— if the if the Minnesota Twins are going to cash it in on 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 Berrios, like abs- like those are you've got you're going to have an opportunity. It's probably cheaper right now because all thirty teams aren't involved in the bidding. Like 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 you'll probably see this offseason. So yeah, if they don't if they don't make an addition here, I'm not going to be like oh my gosh they've ruined every chance they had to make the playoffs this year. I'm going to be like okay where are you going to get another starter? You need another starter and not a Tyler Anderson style. He fits into a rotation starter. Right. You, you're going to need another good guy. You're going to need another guy that you you sort of bill as a front of the rotation type starter. Anderson is right now essentially your your safety blanket as far as your starting rotation, seeing as you are missing a fifth starter. You don't have a fifth starter right now. I'd rather have him pitch than Darren McCacken. 
And you might suffer more injuries too. So while Justice Sheffield threw his bullpen yesterday, so that's what I would, you, this is an opportunity to potentially get another frontline starter. It definitely is. I do wonder though if they believe that bidding would be a smarter way to go about it. If bidding is a better way where you don't have to give up any resources, because you're seeing some of the names that are being mentioned. I mean, when it came to the dude on the uh, Minnesota Twins, whose name is escaping me right now. Berrios. We're talking about George Kirby and Emerson Hancock that are names attached to that. And do you want to go that route? I mean, that's that's the tricky part. Do you want to make the move here where you definitively can get the guy, but you're going to have to pay with an actual asset down the road? Or would you rather get to the offseason and say, all right, well, let's see what happens if we get into a bidding war. Uh, that I, I don't think we know what would happen in the bidding war. You know, we don't know how far they would go as far as what they would be willing to pay, and we also don't know how many players would be willing to come here either, which is also I think a big detriment for them. So these are things that they're going to have to consider. Very interesting next thirty hours for Jerry Depoto and the Seattle Mariners. It's Danny and Gallant, seven ten, ESPN, Seattle. Seahawks training camp is upon us. What are you buying, based off of what you have heard from Pete Carroll over the past twenty four hours? We'll dive through some of that. And take a look at something that's been a little bit of a problem child for them over the last couple of years.